Yeah, it never, never hurts to have great bedside manner. The reality of this is sometimes people are just going to complain. And I think this doctor did everything right, but uh, still there was a complaint filed. If you're wrong in a jerk, we have a new name for you. It's called the defendant position. Hey, Rick Bucata, Greg Henry, the July Risk Management Monthly issue coming to you. Actually, we're not too far into July. It's not bad. We're around the 8th or 9th or somewhere in there. So we're not too far behind. And we have a guest a guest that we talked with the last time, I think it was in September, Mark Calvert. Mark's from um, down there in uh, Cypress, Texas. Mark, welcome aboard. We're, uh, we really appreciate your coming on again with us. Thank you so much. Uh, for those that don't know, Cypress is just a little bedroom community of Houston uh, down here in southwest Texas. Yeah, we're recording this. Uh, uh, it was last night that the terrible disaster took place in Dallas with five police officers being shot and seven others wounded. Our thoughts go out to you. I mean, we always forget that we deal with a certain end of the legal process. There are people who have a much tougher end of the legal process. And those people put on a uniform and a gun every day. It is, they do a lot for us and uh, our thoughts are with them. You know, when I heard about a sniper in Dallas, it reminded me of the JFK situation. And, and I thought of those doctors having to uh, do everything they could to try to, to save those uh, men and women that have been shot. Uh, just, a, just an awful thing. By the way, Mark, I've, I've got to mention this before we start. You have to switch to decaf coffee because clearly you've got excess energy here to burn. And what I'm saying to the listeners is Mark has done a huge amount of work preparing for this. And you realize making the other two respondents here look bad is not a good thing to do. I mean, uh, all of a sudden, well, there's no reason for Rick and I to be on, the, on, on this recording. But in any event, uh, we uh, we appreciate all your efforts. You're always popular on the show, and it's just great to have you with. Yeah, we haven't said that Mark is a uh, malpractice attorney here, and our connection with Mark is through Amal Matu, who did a. I think you've done some cases together. Is that that true? And I think you've also were on MRAP, which is everybody understands MRAP. So you know, Mark, you gave us a list of. You know, I asked you for things that you. Uh, have accumulated over the since that we the year that we've talked last, and one of the things that you had listed were medical board cases in which you had to go to the uh, defense of emergency physician behavior, and we're always interested in those cases because you know there seems to be two parallel traps people get in the uh, medical legal trap where they could have to go before a, a judge and a jury and bad things can happen and money could be exchanged hands. But for us, in another way, the medical board is even worse because the, because the jury can't take your license from you. They can take your, your insurance company's money from you, but the medical board can really make your life very, very, very miserable. And we've had some experiences with nasty things happening to physicians through the medical board that didn't seem at all to justify the magnitude of the response. So I'd be particularly interested in what you have to say about medical board cases and, and, and getting physicians into trouble. 
Well, you're spot on. In my experience, and I've been doing this 30 years defending healthcare providers, most professionals are more unnerved and bothered by some type of uh, licensing agency coming after them, even if it's on a trivial matter, than they are uh, about a serious lawsuit. And really with some good reason. You know, in a lawsuit, you have a lot of the protections. I mean, you have all the protections of of the law, of the Constitution, of evidence. You have some degree of neutrality by the judge and jury. With these board matters, it can be a bit of a kangaroo court. It reminds me somewhat of some of the political shenanigans we see with, you know, some of these FBI investigations and various things like that, where it's like, how did they reach that conclusion? And what precedent are they following? And who's overseeing them? And all of these things kick in with uh, the medical board. And so it can be, it can be uh, very distasteful. Very distasteful. I testified in uh, multiple states for physicians with medical board hearings. Some states are actually quite nice for physicians. Wyoming is great. <laughs> uh, don't go to New York. <laughs> New York uh, is overly managed, over-controlled. They have too many people who get to advance in their careers with the, with the various state departments if they get physicians, and it's very popular to get physicians. And by God, I've heard some of the strangest testimony out of uh, out of experts there as to what constitutes the standard of care. I think Rick's point was very well taken. When we're in a system where we understand what the due process is, it's easy to play with it. When you're in something where it is kangaroo court, where, where it is by dictate and fiat, it can be very unnerving for physicians. And I find those, those situations extremely uncomfortable. I would think though, Mark, that Texas ought to be a fairly good state for physicians. Come on now. Well, it is. And not to get too lost into the weeds, but when tort reform hit in 2003, there was a compromise. And so the board upped their police responsibility because there was a reduction in lawsuits. So we had the, the, the inroad made of less lawsuits, which is a blessing for doctors. But then we had the board being more aggressive and there was a dramatic leap. You know, it's been a, a little bit of a roller coaster. I think that with the current regime that we have, the president of the Texas Medical Board now is a good man. I've used them as an expert, and we are getting more cases uh, thrown out earlier. I think they have a better mechanism for screening uh, the frivolous from the real. But I just had a recent experience there. I was there last week. We went before a panel. We had presented detailed information. They clearly had not read it. They were surprised at some of the things we were able to counter their expert with. And at the end of it, they did something very unprecedented. Instead of rendering a decision and dismissing the matter like they should have, they looked at us and said, we want you to take everything you've given us, narrow it down into a very short uh, list of reasons why we should dismiss this. We had wasted the doctor's time to drive all the way up there to Austin and I was outraged because they had not done their job to review this packet of information on the front end. So even with a good president of the board, we occasionally that get that kind of nonsense. And let me tell you, as bad as the court system is, that never would have happened with a lawsuit. And yet it's allowed to happen in this setting. And there's not a whole lot we can do about it. And the doctor just had to bite his fist and accept it. And, uh, you know, we're still fighting that thing. So um, it's crazy. 
they should have done something truly unprecedented and taken away their own licenses uh, for being idiots. I mean, I hate the fact that a doc has been put under duress and people haven't taken the time to read the materials and figure out what's going on. I think that's I think that's embarrassing for the medical board to hold that kind of uh, sort of, uh, you know, kitty kitty type uh, meeting and not have done the real work. That's just inappropriate. Although, you know, there is this issue of really egregious cases that get into the newspapers that really stir the population to make sure that there's somebody kind of watching out for them in terms of the quality of the care provided by doctors. And so the medical board basically is an agent of the state to make sure that the doctors are safe. And then when you see these headlines, there was a headline recently here in Los Angeles of a doctor who was accused of murder and was convicted of murder and got 30 years. It's the first doctor ever in the United States convicted of murder through their through their malpractice, uh, through their practice. Three young people around the ages of 21 to 25 to 28 died as a result of opiate overdoses. And this doctor was just basically a pill mill giving people prescriptions. Here's $500, give me a, a, and then they would give them a prescription. So when they see cases like this, it kind of gets everybody kind of nervous about, well, you know, this may be the tip of the iceberg because there's all of this stuff now about these opiate-related deaths. And, and all of this information is coming out about doctors who have gone to the dark side and basically are making lots of money. There's one, this doctor's practice had generated $5 million in three years through this uh, going to the dark side. But there's also cases like, as an example, we talked about in the past, Greg, Tug Valley Pharmacy, where they had four or five doctors. One of the doctors was the largest prescriber of opiates in the state of West Virginia. And that hits hits the newspapers and people get really kind of concerned that this may be happening more frequently. And so these uh, medical boards kind of are the police department of the uh, state of, uh, you know, wherever you are, making sure doctors are okay. I've certainly dealt with cases where, where they did an excellent job, no question about it. But it needs to be somewhat fair. It needs to, it, we need to understand why we're doing it. Michigan had a, um, an oncologist, a hematologist oncologist who billed Medicare, Medicaid, and third-party payers, $37 million over the years. And they found out that a, a lot of his patients had no cancer at all. And he was giving people chemotherapy, huge doses of chemotherapy, had actually killed people to raise these prices. We need to go after people like that, and they are an embarrassment. Uh, but I also had cases where an emergency doc was criticized and they wanted their license taken away because they didn't do a urine culture at the same time they looked for red cells on a patient with a kidney stone. I mean, this is, by the way, this was a, a urine with no infection in it. Uh, I mean, this kind of crap also comes up. So I, I think we can agree here on the panel. Yeah, it's not a bad idea. The patients need somebody to protect the larger system, but at least the process ought to be fair 
I mean, not not some of this rinky-dink stuff that, that they come up with. Anyway, if I don't have to go back to New York State to testify again, I'm just as happy. Mark, what about the rules of evidence in these medical board cases? What what do they use if it's not the rules of uh, that would occur in a typical trial situation? Well, it depends on who you get on the panel. It can be a bit of a free-for-all. I guess my biggest complaint with these board uh, processes is the lack of thoroughness. I agree with both of you that it's a necessary uh, function. We've got to have we've got to have the government step in and help us with the bad actors. It does remind me a, a bit of the uh, comparison with the police officers that Greg brought up earlier. You've got a few bad apples. And we need some help with that. Some of these videos are alarming, and some of the behavior is just, you know, off the scales wrong. But then we paint with a pretty broad brush, and that's what tends to happen with the doctors. So you do have guys that, that run pill mills. The, the hearing we were just uh, in front of the Texas Medical Board last week, the allegation was pill mill. But there wasn't any evidence of it. We poked holes in that. It looked like Swiss cheese at the end. And they hadn't done their due diligence. They just, because of the, I think because of the nationality of the guy, they made some assumptions. I think that uh, they just assume that everybody who's a pain management doctor is kind of dancing on the edge of Medicare fraud and, and, and et cetera. And they didn't look at the, the details. As Greg said, the devil's in the details. They didn't do their job. So what we need from them is we need more diligence. Well, guess what? That takes time. And they don't want to take the time to do that. So just like no two patients are exactly the same and the doctor has to spend you know, the same amount of time uncovering information from patient A as they did patient B, these boards need to do the same thing on the doctor's cases. So, yeah, some of them, I mean, you do have attorneys involved, and so there's a little bit of a, a somewhat of a feeling of of honor with respect to at least, you know, giving some credence to evidence. But some things go out the window pretty quick. At the hearing last week, they let the, the complainant come in and just talk. And it was there was a lot of hearsay. There was stuff that didn't matter. I mean, he was talking about how he had come from a country that had very little freedom. And he was so happy to be here where there was a lot of freedom. And I wanted to jump up and say, what does that have to do with what we're doing here? He was just trying to manipulate their emotions. A, a judge probably would have shut that down. But this panel... They sit there and listen to them with, you know, kind of their, you know, tears dripping out of their eyes. And you're like, this is not, this is not set up in the way that it should be. So it's a back and forth of evidence. It does kind of boil down to the experts. You know, those that are listening to this, I would say the takeaways are, first of all, you've, you, need to get a, you need to get a lawyer. If you get a letter from your licensing agency Go to your insurance company. They typically provide defense counsel. There may be some caps on the fees, but it's it's worth it to get an attorney involved. Absolutely. You want to try to terminate this in the paper stage before you get to a hearing. They have to justify their existence uh, like any bureaucracy. And so if you get to the point of a hearing, the odds of discipline increase. So if you can, if you can clip it early with some good written responses, that's, that's preferred. And a couple of the cases that I'm going to you know, talk about today, we were able to get dismissed before we had to go to the hearing. And the main way we do that, again, for the benefit of the listeners, is you want to have a tight response that relies on the records. If there's some literature that's applicable, use it. 
and get a report from an independent expert. And sometimes that can nudge them away from pursuing the investigation. Give us some, give us some examples, Mark. Well, one, and this isn't an emergency room case, but we, we just represented an infectious disease doctor on an allegation that a patient came to see him and that he failed to diagnose Lyme disease. Well, Lyme disease is not very common in Texas. You know, this is kind of a northeastern state's situation. And so what we did to pick it apart is, number one, had a detailed meeting with the doctor, went through his records, and drafted a great response for him. Number two, we got a very good infectious disease expert who was actually a, a Lyme disease expert, had written some chapters on it, and he agreed immediately to help us out, and we got a tight report from him. Third, we went to uh, Harrison's on uh, internal medicine. We also went to the Center for Disease Control website, and we found charts and graphs and other algorithms that basically showed you don't check for Lyme disease unless there's certain things present, which she didn't have present. To the Texas Medical Board's credit, they dismissed that thing one day after they got our response. So that was the three-headed monster. Yeah, that's that's good. I I mean... When you think about Lyme disease, even in areas where it's prevalent, it can be so bizarre in its presentation. I think the standard of care in Lyme is to miss it the first 12 times (laughs) they present to a doctor. And, you know, I'm coming from a state that has a little of it. I suppose if you're in Lyme, Connecticut, uh, you can think about it a little more since they don't have another disease named after them. But uh, you're right. uh, Some of the presentations can be I've seen very bizarre things. And uh, it's not often on the first visit we make that diagnosis. Yeah, exactly. So I think that, that we find that formula where we do a good report. We, we draft the report for our doctor. He has right of first refusal. He can change it any way he wants. But you've got to have the proper terminology in there, respect for the board, et cetera, et cetera. You get a good expert, and then you get a piece of literature, and it's a, it's a one, two, three formula that has worked pretty darn good for us. Mark, is there a situation where the medical board will get its own expert to help them work through the science of these issues where, in fact, the expert's not coming from either side, but is representing, you know, the idea is to, is to kind of cut through the science for them. Yes, uh, these boards uh, do employ experts. I mean, they're guys that are guys and gals that are out working in the industry, and so they'll have an emergency medicine doctor look at an emergency medicine case. It's anonymous and and confidential. We never find out the identity. Mm-hmm. And you know, one thing I would really ask is to to have kind of a a reasonable, gracious approach. I find sometimes that the worst enemy for doctors are fellow doctors. And when they take shots at them and become very entrenched in their opinion, and we've seen that recently where the 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 expert made a commitment on a position on a board matter and really couldn't be talked out of it. And actually at this this hearing we went to last week, we so unraveled what the expert had said that the panel members said, we are not going to listen to our expert anymore because you've discredited him. And I thought, you know, that's a shame. That's a shame that this supposedly objective expert retained by the board, he's got the cloak of confidentiality and anonymity that he was so entrenched in his opinion 
that he couldn't come around and say, you know what, criticisms one, two, and three, they really aren't valid anymore. You've shown me records to show that those aren't valid, but he held on to them tenaciously. Why? I mean, isn't this some kind of effort to find truth? This isn't a lawsuit where he's making money based on how the result goes. Let's be fair. Let's be fair to each other. So, yes, the board uh, typically gets experts, and it's people out in the community, and it can be as as much a roll of the dice as uh, the type of panel you get when you go to a hearing. Our, our listeners should understand that we're talking about two two parallel tracks because I've certainly been the expert witness for the the civil litigation, you know, the the uh, malpractice case, and been the expert that went to the board uh, to defend the doctor at that moment in time. And I think that our our listeners should understand that you can have double jeopardy here. You can have a board that takes your license gives you a fine, can do this, 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 and this. Although in truth, in the state of Michigan, probably about three quarters of the cases had to do with doctor drug abuse as opposed to any particular patient that is harmed. But if you if you have to keep in mind that you can have a malpractice action that is never referred to the board, or you can have a malpractice action, which as soon as that's done, that one qualifies to be looked at for the board uh, by the board, and then they get to a shot at taking away your license. So uh, you may need you may need to visit several different places if you get sued on one of those cases. Mark, uh, have you got any kind of advice that may be more or less specific for emergency physicians to to stay away from the boards? Yeah. I- I do, and and I got a lot to say on this. I'm really glad that we're opening up this topic because it's a fair amount of what I do, and it does cause doctors a lot of pain. And I want to I want to help them. First of all, what Greg just said is is spot on, and and one of the things I want to advise the the listeners is to understand the the sophistication of the plaintiffs' attorneys. Many times they encourage their clients to make a complaint to the board so that they can get some type of order that's adverse to the doctor. And in some states, it is admissible than in the civil lawsuit. We actually had a case where the, the you know, it was a pill mill situation. Young guy committed suicide uh, after getting uh, narcotics from, from, a, from a doctor. And uh, they filed a complaint with the board. The board popped him pretty good. Now, the specter of taking away the license, you know, all of us kind of throw that out. It's very rare that that happens. Most of the time we're talking about, you know, fines and proctoring of charts and continuing education and things like that. More of a hassle than actually an inhibition on, on being able to practice. But nevertheless, the board popped this guy pretty good. The, the order was pretty stern, and it was a public record. And the plaintiff's attorney then used that as a billy club in the civil lawsuit that he filed. The the state of Texas has determined that you're negligent and that you did this wrong and almost as a surrogate expert against this doctor. So one piece of advice I would have to the listeners and to ER docs in particular is be aware that this could be a cunning move 
to try to secure an order against you, be aware what you agree to, because the statute of limitations may not have run yet and they may follow up with the lawsuit and try to exploit that board order against you. So be careful what you agree to. That's another reason why you need to get counsel. Well, uh, innuendo can be uh, a difficult thing. I was asked a question in court, Dr. Henry, are you aware that this physician is being being investigated by the medical board of the state of Michigan? Now, it doesn't matter what the answer is to that question. The words have been said in front of the jury, investigated by the Board of Medicine. It doesn't say whether they were cleared, not cleared, whether it's an administrative process, but those words were used. And, of course, uh, immediately the other attorney is on their feet saying uh, objection, you know, prejudicial, all this sort of stuff. And the judges said, answer the question. It's, it's a yes or no. It's a yes or no fact. Are you aware of this, Dr. Henry? And I thought, oh, my God, uh, this guy's being set up for disaster by the plaintiff's attorney. And the, the plaintiff's attorney was very cunning in the way he handled that case. And you're right. I think that he goaded the family into filing that complaint with the Michigan board. Yeah, that's a great story, and it is so true. They use it as a tool and use inflammatory language. It's like saying, "Were you aware that this that he's been called a racist at one time?" You know, and and once that's uh, it, out in the jury's ears, that's what they're going to think of him, regardless of how frivolous the the, the claim was. And that's the nicest thing he's been called. <laughs> <laughs> the bell has been rung. You can't take it back. Yes, the bell, you can't unring it. You can't uncook the egg. So, yeah, these are all the motivations. I mean, some other things that I would say is, uh, you know, sometimes there's not going to be a parallel lawsuit, but that doesn't mean that the board matter is not going to be, you know, it's, it's going to leave a mark. I mean, it just, even if it's dismissed quickly, it, it leaves a mark. And so what are some things that, that, you know, ER docs can do to avoid it? I would say you're exactly right when you mention the prescription drug thing. Whether it's just not good documentation or giving something to someone that they can possibly overdose on or misuse in some way, that they've gotten it from the prior ER doc down the street, those are all things that can come back and haunt you. So I would be very careful with the opiates and the and the narcotics and other you know controlled substances. I had a I gave a presentation at the University of Texas a couple of months ago, and, and an ER doc said, "Well, do I just not give them pain medicine?" And I said, "No, but you've got to thread the needle. Give them a reasonable amount. Do your due diligence on finding out if they're getting this from other sources." document, 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 because when they overdose on it or when they use it in a mischievous manner and they come back after you, you've got to be able to protect yourself. You've got to show, I did talk to him about risks. I did look to see if he had had it from other sources. I did communicate to him the downsides of this and my concerns. I didn't give him 90 tablets. I gave him 10. You know, those are things that you can do Another common thing and, and, and really part of what we'll talk about today on these two cases, which I think the doctors did great jobs, but the bedside manner issue always comes up. Board, board actions are often the substitute for a lawsuit. And certainly in Texas, where there's less lawsuits filed, plaintiff's attorneys encourage patients to file board actions 
in lieu of filing a lawsuit. So they may say something like, look, you really weren't hurt. I can't get any money out of this. But if you want your pound of flesh out of the doctor, go ahead and file a complaint with the medical board. And, you know, in 10 seconds, they can get on and type out a complaint and the board's obligated to investigate. So if they get mad, if there's some, if there's a personality conflict, I think like with police officers, I think that the bar has been raised quite a bit on interpersonal relations. And that's tough because I think we have a populace now with growing elements of mental health issues, particularly in the ER. I think we also have growing entitlement and victimhood status. The other thing to keep in mind is a lot of these guys are using their phones to either video or audio record you. And everybody listening to this should should probably realize they've been recorded. If you if you Google that anesthesiologist out of Virginia and the guy left his cell phone on during the colonoscopy and that lady hammered him, that anesthesiologist, and it was a $500,000 verdict. Yeah, we've covered that actually maybe about six months ago or not because we do run into the situation about uh, patients. They're, I mean, they're seeing two and a half, three patients, new patients an hour. And the question is, how do you protect yourself from the audio recording or the visual recording. And we had suggested, frankly, that there be a prominent sign in the emergency department that basically says for the uh, privacy of our patients and your privacy, no uh, recording can take place in the emergency department. Now, obviously, they can say, well, I choose to ignore that. It's my right. It's my laceration that you're sewing up. I want to take a picture of it kind of thing. And you don't want to get into a pissing contest over this. But I certainly agree that once you're being recorded and once you're being, whether it be visual or just auditory, your ears perk up that there's going to be, there's trouble here. Yeah, and you have to make that assumption. I I, look at, again, I don't want to go back to it chronically, but it's instructive with these police videos. You know, people break out the cell phones and all of a sudden they're capturing maybe 40% of the interaction of what's occurred. And it usually doesn't look that great. And I think we just have to make the assumption that if you're an ER doc, you're probably being recorded. So you just want to, you know, you just want to dot the I's and cross the T's. Respectful, you know, language, interacting, making sure that they understand. Even if these people aren't likable, at least playing that role and and coming across reasonable. I mean, what I tell my clients, the bookends that you want to come across to patients, whether it's a lawsuit or, or a potential board matter, to avoid these things, you want to come across as two things. Number one, caring that you give a darn about them, and number two, that you're competent, that you know what's going on. And if you can show them that, you're going to slalom through a lot of troubles. It's always dangerous to uh, quote justices in front of an attorney, (laughs) but uh, I think with the uh, current actions of our attorney general, Justice uh, Leonard Sawhand once said that, that the appearance of impropriety may be every bit as damaging as the impropriety itself. So how things look really does influence juries and other people. And we we should not discount, again, the show business aspect of what we do for a living. Mark, you uh, had mentioned the case in which there were some emergency physicians involved in a pass-on situation. And in the, uh, the first doctor who took care of the patient there was a, a sudden unexpected death in association with the uh, giving of IV contrast for a CT or the like. 
And then there was another doctor who came on and wound up picking up the case. And uh, it resulted in some communications that were deemed by the family of the patient to be unsympathetic and angered them. Can you go a little bit into that? Because pass-ons are becoming viewed as a dangerous situation. Yes, yes, I will. I'd be happy to. You know, there's certain areas of vulnerability, that midnight hour where you're calling the consult and they don't want to come in and you don't want to bug them, but it's a gray area call. That's always a vulnerable time. Shift change is always a vulnerable time. So I met with this good doctor and this involved a 70-year-old man who had undergone, I'm sorry, actually 79-year-old man who had undergone. Yeah, yeah, right. Be careful yeah, there, Mark. There, you, know? you just offended two <laughs> guys here on the, uh, on the panel. Okay, <laughs> he, he's, not, he, he's not that young. He's 79, right? Yeah, okay. Um, Better. So uh, he had had right knee replacement and had been in a rehab situation and had not had a bowel movement for eight days. And so the rehab doctor sent him to the emergency room. You know, his main complaint was abdominal pain. The doctor, very experienced, did a great job. And the x-ray showed a, a large amount of stool, and they went ahead and did a CT scan because the x-ray also showed some possible air. And so they did the CT scan, and uh, they gave him contrast. And before they could do the CT scan, he coded. And, of course, you know, everybody rushed to his side, did everything they could do, and, and they could not uh, resuscitate him. Now, his son was there, a law enforcement officer, and the son was distraught. You know, my dad's constipated, and now he's dead. Uh, I mean, what in the world happened? The doctor, she did a great job. She spent time with him and soothed him and explained it to him. Her shift was over, and she left. The next doctor came on board, and that's when the decedent's you know, wife arrived. Well, she was unhappy, but there had been really no good transition with the doctor such that no one really spoke to the widow, and their unhappiness moved to deep frustration, and they sought an attorney. And so when I met with the doctor, I said, what, what happened? Well, we don't know. The autopsy didn't even really list a cause of death. I mean, there wasn't, any, there wasn't a perforation. There wasn't some kind of bowel issue. There wasn't any noticeable dissection or, or cardiac event. There was nothing on autopsy that they could point to. And so he then kind of at the end, the ER doc said, she said at the end of our conversation, the patient liaison told me, that the family was unhappy because no doctor was there to talk to the widow when she got there. So they actually went after the prior doctor who was the good one. (laughs) (laughs) And the other one who didn't talk to him, I don't know if they didn't know the name or, or, or why they weren't unhappy with that one, but they went after her. And fortunately, that case has not materialized. Well, you know, I think that emergency physicians often get used to staying after their shift is over. If there's ever a time to stay after your shift is over is when there's been a sudden unexplained death in a a person and your shift and the matter hasn't been resolved. All family has not been spoken with, particularly the wife. And you're going to say, I'm sorry, my shift is over. And now what kind of sympathy do you think that people are going to have for you when you act like uh, you're punching out? I'm sorry. That doesn't, that doesn't 
And I think most physicians would understand, I need to kind of stay and kind of get this settled as best as I can because this is a totally unexpected event and the outcome is horrible. Yeah, the second doctor who's sort of taking this over can never have the same relationship with the family that the first physician has. And I'm sorry that this first doctor who tried got hammered. I guess it's the old phrase, uh, no good deed goes unpunished. And it's it's a shame that that had to happen. But I'll tell you that whenever you've got a, a family that is sort of drifting in bit by bit, have a have about the same story to tell them. Because whenever they see any crack in that wall, or there's not a consistent theory from the doctors, that's when there's anger, and anger turns to legal action. Mark, you also brought up a, a, a kind of a, a lied case, you know, related to the photography, that you are involved in a case where the patient's relative was in fact an emergency physician and never let on that that was the case. Is that, am I summarizing that correctly? Yes, right. It was a man in his, his 60s who came in with abdominal pain and his partner was present with him and turned out to be an emergency medicine doctor, which he kept quiet during the exam. So basically on this second scenario, what we have is a, is a guy coming in with abdominal pain he had been triaged for the the less urgent area, you know, instead of going. I, I think there's, you know, in some emergency rooms, there's a, a fork and, and you go to the more serious or the less serious. So before my doctor ever saw him, he had been triaged to the less serious area. His pain was one out of 10. EKG was normal. Turned out he had changed his diet to kind of a low-carb diet a week before, so there was this explainable situation. His labs were pretty much normal, except he was a bit acidotic and hypokalemic and IV solution and, and potassium chloride uh, resolved both. A CT scan was done and was normal. The exam was pretty much normal. And so after a you know, pretty thorough exam and, and you know, a lot of effort, uh, the patient was sent home and encouraged to follow up with his PCP or a, a GI doctor to you know, have H. pylori maybe tested or just to evaluate what was going on. He comes back the next day. He's got a ruptured appendix. The CT scan is off the charts. The, the white blood cells off the charts. He has to have surgery. It's a little bit complicated. His stay in the hospital is prolonged. So what triggered the complaint to the board was the partner who now shows himself as an ER doc and writes a scathing complaint against the first ER doctor. And it was, you know, it was it was it was involved to clear this doctor. The partner who was the ER doc in 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 hiding was very experienced, knew a lot of the words to say, and I think it concerned the board. And so things were a little more involved to 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 get our uh, to get our doc cleared. But we used the same formula. We did a great response for the doctor based on really good records that he had. We got a couple of solid experts with uh, impressive CVs and and titles, etc., and a couple pieces of uh, literature. We got both a surgeon and an ER doc to back us up. They didn't dismiss it the first go-round, but after the second go-round, they finally dismissed it. You know, I read that, uh, the documents you sent us about that, Mark, and it seems like this emergency department, this emergency physician friend was a little bit miffed at the way he was treated 
as if the uh, the emergency doc came in with an attitude and he wasn't given any deference. And clearly he thought that this person was sort of uh, scolding them or lecturing them or giving them, you know, sort of a haughty, he was giving a haughty attitude as to what was going on. You know, it never hurts to make friends with the people who come with the patient, because if they die, if the patient dies, it's the friends who are left to testify against you. You're so right, Greg. I think that the catalyst for this complaint was he felt personally disrespected. And I think it was completely unreasonable. There were a couple of things going on. I think that uh, we had an ER doc who was young, and this uh, friend was was older, and I think he felt disrespected. The other thing that I think was brewing, and I'm I'm an armchair psychologist, but you know my first reaction is, well, if our guy missed it, didn't the friend miss it too? I mean, he's an yeah. ER doc for goodness' sake. <laughs> Yeah, Why how good a doctor is he, right? Exactly. right? He detected there was, you know, that this was an appendix issue. So I think he was displacing some of his frustration with his own efforts on top of this uh, this young doctor who, you know, had, had given a reasonable effort. So I think you're exactly right. So some of the takeaways, and again, I don't think the doctor did anything wrong at all, but I, I agree with your point. When you go into the room, it seems like there's uh, there's an entourage, and figuring out who these people are and, if you can, what their role is and really what they do. It would be rare to have someone in there who's a healthcare provider, much less a doctor. But uh, if they are, I don't think the antenna of of suspicion goes up. I just think that you have to be a little bit more on guard. I mean, if you're if if somebody's looking over your shoulder who's an ER doctor himself, you might want to um, vocalize some of the things that you're thinking a little bit more freely. If you sense that there's some trouble, and I think this guy was folding his arms in the corner and was showing, hey, I feel disrespected by this young ER doctor. If you sense that, then I think you have to shift your approach and maybe be more engaging. Maybe try to talk more and and perhaps uh, open up some type of rapport or dialogue. Another thing is, you know, records, records, records. I mean, the entries in the records are always the lifesaver. And so if you have something like this and you feel like it's not, we're not clicking in an interpersonal way, those records have to be tight. You've got to go down the checklist and everything has to add up. And sometimes you have to get a witness in there. You know, bring in the nurse practitioner, bring in someone to help document that I'm doing what's right, that they feel the same way I do about the guy's abdominal pain. Maybe they can strike up a dialogue. Maybe you get an older colleague, or maybe it's somebody who speaks a different language or is of their race, whatever. But, but, but be creative on getting some, some help. The reality of this is sometimes people are just going to complain. And I think this doctor did everything right, but uh, still there was a complaint filed. You know, it was interesting. I read the the complaint, and somewhere it said the doctor had not done a complete examination. He had not done this or that. I give courses where I talk to docs about not using the word complete exam because you never do the complete exam. You did the exam which was appropriate for the presenting complaint at that time. Whether he looked up the patient's nose when he had abdominal pain or whether he checked his ear for silent otitis media, 
I don't care about that stuff. And, and most people can realize you can't do everything to everybody on every visit to the emergency department. I actually am presenting at, at the October, the National ASAP meeting, three different uh, programs in which we talk about trick questions from attorneys. And that's one of them. Well, did you do a complete exam, doctor? And of course, doctors always want to say, oh, yes. And the reason they did is because that's what they documented on their damn chart so that they could uh, so they could charge for it adequately. <laughs> the truth is, we mostly don't do that. And I always wonder why somebody who's got a 20-year-old woman with uh, a vaginal bleeding has actually checked to see if she's had tonsillitis or not. That doesn't make any sense to me, but uh, I noticed they use that phrase, complete exam. You know what? Let's all be honest with each other. We do what is relevant to the case in front of us, and and that's really what's important. The standard of care requires what's relevant at that moment in time. Although this is somewhat of a evolving issue in that a good number of years ago, it was standard of care to do a rectal exam in the assessment of appendicitis and that you would be attacked if, in fact, you missed a diagnosis and you did not do a rectal exam. And I think that, honestly, that has been evolving, where that is no longer the trip where you're going to fall if you don't do it, because now we have these other things. And in this case, a CAT scan was done. It's like, well, a CAT scan and a rectal exam, they're not even comparable in terms of their ability to make this diagnosis. The other thing I was going to point out is, I don't know about you, Greg, but in my career, there have been people coming in with patients who in fact are healthcare and and in fact physicians and do not identify themselves right off the get-go as physicians. And I often wonder why they don't do that. I think sometimes they think, I don't want to taint the case. I don't want to kind of get involved. That's why I brought them to you. It's like, but I think it's so much better that we know where possible when physicians are in the room or nurses or the like. And I also think it's great to know when in the room with you is an attorney. <laughs> You're going to get two CAT scans. Yeah, you know? right. Say, That's no, right. Just leave me the CAT scan machine, machine until they get enough radiation that they, they can't bother you anymore. You know, I, Rick, I, I would say that in the majority of cases, and I'm here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where, I don't know, every fifth person is an MD. I've had a lot of them come in. Most of them do identify themselves. I've had a few who haven't, but I think most of them want you to take the time to respect their degree of learning so you can carry on that higher level conversation. Yeah, no sweat as, as long as they let you know that they are a pediatrician and that pediatrician has brought in his, his or her mother and they acknowledge that that's not in my field of expertise. Mark, in regard to... Greg saying a complete exam, and that's a trap. You mentioned also that there are some electronic healthcare record phrases that can come back to bite you. Can you go into that? Yeah, you know, the electronic health records, let's face it, they were intended to help streamline what you do, and I think that it's probably opened up a bit of a can of worms for, for a lot of the doctors. And we we tried a testicular cancer case uh, recently. It was not for an emergency medicine doctor, but it was for a family practice doctor, and some of the issues overlap. And she did the exam, and she went ahead and used the uh, 
whatever the, you know, the billing code was. I mean, the guy came in for about five different things and she popped in testicular mass. Well, what she had found was a spermatocele, a, a mass on the outside of the left testicle. But testicular mass became problematic in the lawsuit because it turned out a few months later when he went to a urologist that he did have testicular cancer. And the subsequent treating urologist interpreted the phrase testicular mass made by my family practice doctor as meaning something that was inside the testicle, technically defining uh, it that way. And so that electronic health record pull down was a mistake. And it auto-populated throughout her chart. And so there's about five things that say testicular mass. What she meant was a mass in the area of the testicle. And some alternatives would have been uh, helpful. Spermatocele, benign cyst, something else that she could have put in there. So something to be on guard for, I think, you know, in the emergency room, be careful of the terminology that's used. And then the other entries that are made in an electronic health record, this doctor put uh, medial left testicle instead of medial to left testicle. So this became a source of friction and was really at the crossroads of a tremendous fight down at the courthouse. We ultimately prevailed, but uh, these records were, they were tough to explain. By the way, some of these mistakes are hilariously funny, and you just don't want them in there. Like I, I have a record where it says, patient refused autopsy. Now, I'm sure it meant to say patient's family refused autopsy, but everybody got a, a good laugh out of that in the courtroom, I promise you. This brings up another question that I have struggled with. It relates to the documentation of a differential diagnosis. And most people who have abdominal pain are going to have a relatively wide differential diagnosis. And are we able to reasonably show that we have excluded the majority of the things on that differential diagnosis? Is it just an intellectual exercise to do that? Because the fact is, is you may not have excluded, you know, peptic ulcer disease. You may not have excluded some of the more subtle disorders because you didn't do a multi-million dollar wake up. You did one that you thought was focused on the problem at hand. And then when you're wrong, and you listed all these things that you had considered, and you're wrong. It does does it make you look worse than had you not put this differential down? Well, it's a it's a darned if you do and darned if you don't situation. And I think Greg's right on on plaintiffs' attorneys uh, coming up with cunning ways to try to trick and trap. In the testicular cancer case that we had, the the mantra from the other side was worst first. You know, you should have assumed that this was cancer. It's a mass in the testicle. This can, uh, this can end your life. And so don't assume it's a spermatocele, which is nothing. And you know what? That has some traction with most juries. Well, we try to untangle those knots, and we talk about it based on what's indicated and what's reasonable. And that's the umbrella over all of this. In, in almost, I, I'm assuming every state, you have to act with a reasonable degree of care, not, not perfection. But look, if it's my child or my loved one, 
I do want you to consider, hey, this could, this pain could be a ruptured aneurysm, or it could be something. It could be a bleeding spleen. I don't want you to assume it's because of bad Mexican food that we just ate. So be reasonable. Be be caring. Be competent. As far as listing things out. You know, if you don't list the things out and you don't take some reasonable steps to show why those things aren't there and they turn out to be there, it's Houston, we've got a problem. I mean, that that's that, that's that's a problem. Now, can you CT scan every headache? No, but have a good reason why. And 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 one of the things that I tell all my clients is never ever ever suggest that it's because of resources. What I hear from doctors all the time is, well, tests are expensive. Juries don't care about that when you have a, oh, dead, no, that's a dead kid. A, that's 101. Yeah. You don't ever tie it to resources. What you tie it to are indications. And we don't want to use those resources when other people need that CT scanner. So I'm not going to CT scan the headache when they tell me this is something they get periodically and this is very similar to what they've had. And they also had, you know, something had happened that explains it that's fairly benign. You want to note that. But I think, I think it's important, whether it's a cardiac issue or something else that's a killer, is you want to be able to say the patient doesn't have chest pain right now. It never did move or, or radiate with activity. He never did sweat. He never did have shortness of breath. I think you've got to show that you did wrestle with the worst first, and then you can move to it being GERD. Yes, that's going to take more time, but I get them on the back end, and I always say, wow, it would, it would have helped me a lot if you could show in this record that you had at least ruled some of these things out and hadn't made the assumption that it was something trivial. I, uh, in my talk that we're giving about uh, sort of lawyer's trick questions, their uh, emergency doc is being grilled by this, uh, the plaintiff's uh, attorney, who is a rather aggressive young woman. She's, a she's asking a question, almost the same question, five times in a row just to get under the doctor's skin. And she's videotaping this. So finally, he, he looks at her and says, listen, lady, every drunk who's, who's unconscious doesn't deserve a CT scan. And he does that with, with some ferocity towards her. Hmm. What do you think she opened up with at trial? <laughs> she showed that video and said, he decides who deserves health care or not. And you know what? That's a very telling phrase to a jury. Yes, this guy is. plays God, and that's, that's what she showed. It was the worst moment of his life. And when I think of all the docs who I prepped for, for uh, deposition, he's absolutely the worst. <laughs> it, was, it, went, it went so badly. <laughs> that uh, that's a, a story that gives me sh gives me chills because we do see things like that happen. And what I want to say to the listeners, because I really do care about what happens to you, if you are being videotaped in a deposition, you have got to be a boy or girl scout. Everything's got to be yes sir, no ma'am, whatever it is. And I don't care if they do it ten times. Their motivation is to try to get under your skin and to try to make you look bad and to take things out of context. And you just have to be unflappable. You have to be graceful. You can't lose your cool or you'll end up losing the case because of it. 
Well, this gal was very smart, and she she figures out where she can get under the skin of most every doctor. I saw her taking the deposition of a DO and said, are you a DO because you didn't get into MD school? Tell us, doctor, how many how many medical schools were you refused entry to before you went to osteopathic school? Now, the the doctor was not expecting that out of the gate. And if you don't think I, 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 the doctor he asked is practically in tears. And of course, doctors under pressure will admit to the Sacco and Benzetti killings <laughs> if you give them a chance. And and and. He's actually in tears talking about, you know, how he tried here, he tried there. Lady, don't be that mean to my doctor, but you know what? They don't care. And it got the exact result that she wanted. And again, she opens up with, here's a doctor who couldn't get in to be a real doctor. Oh, my God. It was just awful. I would like to go against her, I'll tell you, because I would I would advise the listeners, this is a psychological warfare, and you've got to have some grittiness here and realize that they're going to try to do things to make you embarrassed or to make you look bad, and you just have to, to weather it and not let them, not let them get to you. But her, the, the doctor's lawyer should have objected and instructed him not to answer that question. That's yes, I, I would think so as well. Yeah. But yeah. again, when those videos and this gal... And Rick and I know plaintiff's attorneys who never take a dep without videotaping it. The gentleman we know, actually, we is in Hawaii with us occasionally. This gentleman says there will be a facial twitch or movement, and his job is to pick out of those questions that look on their face of shock or surprise or whatever it is that's what gets shown to the jury because he says you'd bore you'd bore a jury with most videotapes he said he wants the moments of surprise you know mark some of us occasionally review records and you had a case where the review of records was very enlightening it wasn't what was on the record it was what was on the film can you go into that case for us Yes, yes, and it's actually uh, the testicular cancer case. I went to uh, Washington and I deposed the plaintiff's expert, and he said, look, spermatoceles don't just disappear. And I've reviewed the ultrasound report, and they light up like Christmas trees, and there's no mention here of a spermatoceal. There's just mention of two huge tumors overtaking the left testicle. I flew back to Houston, and I thought, you know, this is going to be a problem. We do have some evidence that spermatoceles can disappear, but uh, I went and met with my uh, expert who was a, a, a renowned expert in urology. He was also an ultrasound expert. He would, you know, certified as an ultrasound reader. And he said to me, he said, well, I'll tell you what, let me look at the ultrasound and let's see. Let's see how, I mean, maybe they didn't go far enough into the area. And so it's a 73 image thing. And he looks at it, and he gives me a call, and he says, pull this up, and I want you to look at some of these images with me. Look at image 56. He said, you see that little cyst on the outside of the left testicle? He said, that's called a tunica albiginia cyst, and it's five millimeters. It's a fluid-filled cyst, and it's in exactly the area that your doctor said she felt. It's outside the testicle, and there's also a 
a tumor inside the testicle. He said, that's what she felt. And then he said, look at the epididymis. There's spermatoceles in there. There were things outside the testicle that she felt. And that was the Perry Mason moment. We went to trial, and the jury loved that because guess what? They didn't bring their Washington expert, and he never saw the actual ultrasound. And I went over that in closing argument with a vengeance that it's a shame, shame on these people for not coming clean on what's on the actual ultrasound. And it was it was great. And the other bookend to that was we had an oncology expert who was equally good who was able to do the doubling time. And he calculated that this tumor, when she first saw the patient, now she feels a a cyst outside the testicle. But where's that cancerous tumor inside the testicle? It's probably in the center of the testicle, and it's 3.14 millimeters, which is the size of roughly a BB. And he said, I don't know about the rest of the men in this room, but no one's ever squeezed my testicle enough to be able to feel something in the center of it that's three millimeters. And they all burst out laughing. And that was the case. That one-two punch of the urologist seeing the ultrasound and the oncologist saying this thing was too dang tiny to feel was what the jury really hung their hat on. So uh, you have to be careful because uh, just reviewing the paper record may not be the entire story. Exactly. I mean, it, it's, uh, we assumed that, that that radiologist had put in everything. And so the radiologist who uh, did the report of the ultrasound, they said, we said, why didn't you put spermatoceal in there? And he said, spermatoceal? That's not going to kill you. I'm focusing on the tumor. There's a lot of stuff in here I'm not going to put in the report. And that's kind of the teaching moment is when you have a situation, go and look at the film, go and look at the study or get experts to do so because the report may not say it all and you may have some case-breaking information that can really help you out. Mark, we've got about mm, maybe a solid 10 minutes left. Do you have any other words of wisdom for us? I could talk forever. <laughs> I could talk <laughs> well, forever. Go to it. I, I would love to share some thoughts. First of all, it's you know such a pleasure to be able to work with the greatest profession in the world, which I think is uh, the medical profession. You guys are in the trenches, and you're making the difference between life and death. I think that I see it over and over again. There's basically three reasons people sue. One is that there's a, a bad result. Number two, they feel like they can exploit a situation. And number three is a bedside manner issue. And there's usually two of those present. So your bedside manner can inhibit a lot of claims and lawsuits. You want to develop a rapport with the patient. If you can't spend as much time as you think maybe you should, have somebody else in there, the nurse or whatever, or give them the explanation. I'm doing things out here on your matter. I'm actually looking up information on the complaints you've given to me. I will be with you very soon. You know, let reassure them because if they walk out of there and they have a a feeling that you either disrespected them or you didn't spend enough time with them and then the bad result occurs, that's a recipe for a lawsuit or a claim. People can accept the bad result if they've been treated well and and with respect. Now, there are some legally savvy people 
they feel like they can exploit it. And so even if you had the great bedside manner, if you get the bad result and they're savvy and want to exploit it to get money, then your bedside manner may not matter, but it will matter to the jury. Yeah, it never, never hurts to have great bedside manner, as was pointed out to me many years ago by a physician. He says, you know, Greg, if you're scientifically correct and you're a jerk to the patient, then you're just a jerk doctor. If you're, if you're incorrect, if you're wrong and a jerk, we have a new name for you. It's called the defendant physician. <laughs> And and I always thought that that was a wonderful way of phrasing this, that uh, all you need is a bad outcome and a bad attitude, and somebody thinks they need vengeance. Well, Mark, before before you go on, if I could add a tangent here that's been bugging me, we had a physician on this program maybe, well, I think it's probably within, within the year. And he was making the case that inadequate staffing of the emergency department and having the physicians be expected to see too many patients or the intensity of the cases are such that, and, and mistakes occur in that environment, that the hospital is also to blame, particularly if you're an employee of the hospital where, in fact, it's not your prerogative to bring in extra physicians or PAs to help you as an independent contractor might. Um, You're talking about a, a corporate negligence on top of the individual doctor negligence that that the corporation should have as part of its responsibility adequate staffing of the emergency department. Is that what you're I, implying, Rick? Yeah, I've just never seen any cases where that is the issue, yet it is, I believe, a common, common occurrence. I think you're right, and I've handled cases where those issues have come up, and good plaintiff's attorneys can develop it. You know, good plaintiff's attorneys usually don't just sue the doctor. They almost always bring in the hospital. And hospitals are harder to defend, especially if they start bringing in nurses and and, and mid-levels and, and staff people. They don't usually play as well as as a doctor. And so those things sometimes can be developed. In a conservative venue, sometimes the judges will shut some of that discovery down, but uh, I think it's a factor. It reminds me of the movie Jerry Maguire with Tom Cruise, where he writes that, uh, you know, all night he writes that paper and publishes it, and basically his conclusion was, we can do a better job if we have less clients. <laughs> he lost his job. Right? I mean, I mean, in this country, of course that's true. Of course doctors can do a better job if they see one per hour versus five. But I don't know that that allows business to succeed. And so the art of the deal, so to speak, is for the doctor to be able to prioritize and to be able to master interacting with people in the time amount that he has. Cryptic records that have the most important information, having witnesses when you need them. The person can't speak English clearly, getting a colleague that can come in and help understand what they're saying, having the antenna to realize the high-risk patient. They've brought an entourage in, find out who those people are, but do it nicely. Don't cross-examine them. If you turn to them and say, who are you and what do you do? Well, you've already probably burnt a bridge, and it's going to be hard to recover in 10 minutes. So it requires more finesse, I think, and more intelligence. 
than uh, maybe maybe we've appreciated before. But that I, I agree with you. I think that is a recipe for problem. Having too much to do and just the the burden of you know more 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 for the for the business. Well, I don't. I didn't mean to take much of your time. I want you to go through your list to the extent that you can about how to keep us out of trouble. Well, you know, again, it seems to me that uh, when you deal with consultants, that's another area that's ripe for problems. And I've handled several emergency uh, cases. One that comes to mind, I think I talked about it last time, but it was a budding heart attack case. And I remember when I met with the emergency doctor, he was a nice guy, but I remember the first thing he said to me was, cardiologists don't like to be told to come in in the middle of the night. And I thought, listen, dude, (laughs) if that's going to be your default, you're going to have a lot of these because heart attacks don't come at convenient times. They're not a respecter of person's sleep schedule. And I know there's politics and I know that there's hierarchy, but if this guy's got a budding STEMI, you better get that interventional cardiologist in there and let him do his thing. And if he's ticked off because it turns out to not be a STEMI, oh, well. But when you try to protect his sleep schedule to the risk of the patient, that's playing Russian roulette with the gun at their head, and juries don't like that. So be careful when you're dealing with consultants, especially at the uh, midnight hour, because disasters are in the offing. And, and, you know, if it's a suspected, you know, abdominal issue with a potential perforation, and that general surgeon says, well, do you think I need to come in? The answer is, heck yes. (laughs) I mean, if the emergency room doctor thinks he needs to come in, come in. Don't roll the dice with that because when they come in eight hours later and the guy is a a disaster and his abdomen is hard as a rock and he can't be saved, let me tell you, he's going to say, the emergency medicine doctor didn't tell me I needed to come in. So you document, talk to the general surgeon, reported to him all of the above, and recommended that he come and see the patient now. And and that's a record that will protect you, and that's what you should do. So, you know, dealing with the consultants, I know can be tricky. I'm not trying to, to Pollyanna the thing. I know there's political forces at play. And I also know that 99% of the time, it turns out that they didn't need to come in. But that 1% of the time where you didn't tell them to come in and they should have come in, that can ruin your career. It can ruin your life. I mean... You know, hindsight is always twenty twenty, isn't it, Mark? And it uh, you know, occasion, occasionally they will come in, and it's not a big deal. But when experienced ER docs think you're sick, you're probably sick. Yep. I mean, we've seen a lot of these patients, and uh, it's a good idea for them to come in. The other thing is, no matter what their board specialty is, they can be wrong too, and uh, you don't want to uh, you don't want to be crucified on that one. You know, if you think they need to come in, they got to come in. Come in and when in doubt, order the test. I mean, that's the other thing. When these, when they're kind of doing a, well, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. If your instinct is I should order that CT scan, do it. Oh, listen, we have no problem ordering CT scans. If anything, we are the... uh... That little checkbox is going to get worn out from the yeah. number. Yeah, we, we've irradiated yeah. most of the country. Yeah, we don't need to ask anybody's permission to do those. And as a result, man, we we, we light them up. Yeah. Well, Rick, is it time for wine of the month? Yes, uh, yeah, Greg, you got a couple of minutes. Go to it, man. All right. We're going to comment on uh, Neil Martin's piece. 
Neil is uh, one of Parker's people who tastes a lot of wine around, and he's just gone through Oregon looking at the better stuff. And I want to point out that here on Risk Management Monthly, we want to give you bargains. I think we talked last month about Costco and how they're getting into the wine business at such a level. It's unbelievable. But there's a place called the Brooks Winery in Oregon that they make the 2015 Amacase, A-M-Y-C-A-S. It's not just just so that Mark doesn't throw a fit here. It's not Amicus. It's <laughs> Amacase. And they're in the Willamette Valley where most of the wine is in Oregon. They have a white, which is now at $18 a bottle, considered by Neil Martin, a great expert on this kind of stuff. He says it's fabulous. Now, right down the road is a place that's selling the same wine at about 48 bucks a bottle. Why would you do that? I don't understand it. But he says, if you want great value for the money, it's Amicase. Now, assuming we have a, just one minute left, there's another one, which is great. And that is, again, in Oregon. In, uh, there's a place called Willamette Valley Vineyards. And they've got a Pinot Blanc right now, 24 bucks a bottle, which he says is going to be world class. So there's two wines, state of Oregon, really good. Can you spend more money? Yes. He also rates those wines, which are a hundred bucks a bottle, and he doesn't rate them any better than the two I've just given you. So there, there's some the information. Now, down in Texas, I know you're, you're drinking bourbon and branch water and stuff like that. But uh, if you get in the wine business, uh, Mark, these are two you ought to put on your shelf. <laughs> okay. If I ever do, I will. <laughs> hey, Mark, I want to thank you very much for taking the time. You've been very generous, and you have been very generous with your, your time and your genuine interest in putting yourself out of business. <laughs> well thank you it's it's an honor to talk to you guys you you really know your stuff and uh, i'm impressed with what you do and and if i can offer some nuggets of gold out there to help i'm uh, certainly willing to do so yeah, well don't worry you're going to be back in the next uh, <laughs> before the year's up and uh, doing some more stuff with us sounds great so rick you want to close us up here well, yeah, thanks for listening. This is uh, July 2017. Our guest was Mark Calvert. 16. 16? Am I, am I a year ahead? 16. You've got to stop drinking. Short-term memory issues. You know, I got them. I got them. In any case, thank you all. I appreciate it very much. Talk with you next month. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.